Hello, and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast, along with Jim Pugh of the Universal Income Project. I'm Owen Poindexter. And Jim, I am really excited to talk to our guest today because he is someone who is not just advocating for the basic income or spreading the word. He is someone who is actually uh, making the basic income happen in, uh, in a couple different countries. Yeah, so I'm very excited as well. Uh, I'm here with Joe Houston from Give Directly who's in charge of planning and running the basic income experiment that is being planned in Kenya um, coming up in the years ahead. Um, so, Joe, thank you so much for being here with us and, and chatting a bit. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so just to start, you work at Give Directly. Can you just tell us a little bit about the organization? What is it that you all do? Yeah, what GiveDirectly does is actually fairly simple. Um, we're an NGO exclusively devoted to delivering cash transfers. Um, we currently work in Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda, and we deliver cash through mostly mobile money to the extreme poor. That's great. And how did you end up there? What's your background? What, what motivated you to get involved with this? Yeah, so I sort of have a funny path to uh, Kampala, Uganda, where I'm based now. I was originally following GiveDirectly as a donor, and so um, was sort of looking at different types of charities and NGOs and trying to follow the evidence about where it seemed like which types of NGOs were having the most impact. Um, so through sources like GiveWell and some of the other sort of charity evaluators, found GiveDirectly and was really excited about what it was doing, um, and then basically happened to get introduced to one of our founders, um, Michael. Um, since then, I've been managing our team, first in Kenya and then in Uganda, sort of doing the actual enrollment, payments, and follow-up um, in sort of rural Kenya and Uganda. And so actually, I did not know that you, you lived in Uganda um, most of the time. Can you just give us a little sense of your day-to-day -day life there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's fairly varied. My role is primarily a management one. And so in both Kenya and Uganda, we're managing large teams of people who are going out basically house to house in very poor areas and enrolling um, people who want to participate in the program. Um, and so that's a sort of very on-the-ground operation. It involves sort of explaining who we are, which at first sounds very strange to people, um, then collecting data, having that sort of flow into a database, and after a few interactions with the recipient, starting to send them money uh, through mobile money. Um, and so my job is sort of a mix of working in uh, now Kampala and previously in Kisumu, Kenya, um, as well as sort of going out to the kind of rural areas surrounding where we're doing actual enrollment. Um, and then also sort of managing our field teams in Kenya and Uganda, and our call center teams in Kenya and Uganda um, that basically operate like a customer service center. So every time we're sending out money, we're calling people to confirm that they've received it. Um, and then they also have a, a phone number for us to call and ask questions um, about give directly, about the program, about when the next payment is coming, things like that. So it sounds like the logistics around this may be considerably more complicated than one might initially expect. People might think, oh, just give people cash, that's easy. I'm curious, are there, what are the biggest surprises? What are the things that might shock people the most about what's actually involved in making this happen? Yeah, it's a funny mix of like, on the one hand, being extraordinarily simple, and the one hand, on the other hand, having sort of unexpected challenges. And so the extraordinarily simple part is, you know, from my laptop and some of the other managers were sending basically a million dollars per laptop to mobile, to sort of mobile phones in Kenya and Uganda, um, which is, 
you know, it's an instant click of the button thing, and then people all over rural Kenya and Uganda are getting text messages saying they've received X amount of money. Um, and so that part is extraordinarily simple. And I think the parts that are more difficult are layering on, one, a communication piece, that the thing we're doing seems extremely, extremely weird. Um, it does both in the U.S. People are asking questions like, won't they drink the money away or they won't work or things like that. And it also seems weird in Kenya and Uganda where people are saying, what do you mean you're just going to give me a $1,000? Um, and so I think there's a lot of pieces around communication which vary from talking a lot about the evidence behind cash um, and also sort of very basic things like, no, this is not a scam. No, we're not going to come and ask for the money back or anything else in exchange. Um, and I think the other parts are sort of similar aspects of running a large um, sort of operational team that's interacting with customers or recipients. And so um, we have about 100 people in Kenya and about, you know, now 100 people in Uganda. They're interacting directly with recipients and dealing with all the sort of normal human things of people wondering why they're at your house or wondering when they're getting a payment or arguing with another human and because you're there wanting you to intervene. Um, and then also sort of normal things about running a call center in terms of um, the technology of recording calls and recording the data and things like that. Um, and so it's a funny mix of, um, on the one hand, something that's extraordinarily simple, um, and the other, the sort of classic suite of operational and communication problems. Yeah. Yeah, somehow the most daunting part of that sounds like going up to a total stranger's door and saying, hello, I'd like to give you $1,000. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think that job can be both very, very fun um, when people believe you and also very strange if they don't. Um, the sort of field officers in both countries would have a lot of good stories. Um, sometimes it's, like, amazing. You show up, they've heard about your program. They're both, one, very happy and then have very like, specific operational questions. You know, what targeting criteria are you using in my village? Um, when exactly would I get the money? Things like that. Um, and then sometimes, yeah, it takes a lot of convincing. Um, as you imagine, if you showed up, showed up in a sort of city in, in the U.S. and started knocking on doors and offering out $1,000 short checks. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are about to embark on a very ambitious experiment uh, where you're, you're going to give a basic income, a long-term basic income, to an entire village. So what motivated you to, to go to the village scale instead of just individual people or individual households? Yeah, and this is something we're really excited about. Um, and I should clarify that it'll actually be sort of, uh, you know, like between 30 and 50 villages receiving the pure basic income, and then actually hundreds receiving either nothing as a control group or um, some sort of comparison different types of cash transfers to isolate things about the basic income. I, I think the village level is really important for um, trying to get at the aspects of what might a universal basic income, what, what might be different from just a normal cash transfer. Um, and I think the sort of two pieces of that are, one, how everyone around you, around you receiving cash affects you, whether it's they're paying you to do something or they're spending on something that um, you're selling or things like that. And so there's that sort of spillover effects um, or kind of macro type effects that I think will be really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I think the second thing which is interesting is the sort of incentives or social fabric thing. Of how does society feel differently if everyone around you has that sort of basic safety net? And I think that has a lot of dimensions. Um, something we found in previous research was that receiving a cash transfer markedly lowered your stress levels. Mm -hmm. And you saw that in a variety of ways. We measured, in that study, measured cortisol levels. And you could literally see the cortisol um, reduction for cash transfer recipients. 
kids. Um, we also looked at things like domestic violence and sort of compared treatment receiving households versus non-receiving and similarly saw reductions in domestic violence. And so there are these like sort of social fabric type effects that um, if you have a society where everyone is sort of has that safety net, um, you know, there's a sort of broad set of questions you might want to see how society feels under those types of circumstances. Yeah. So you, you mentioned stress levels and then domestic abuse. What else are you going to be looking at here? What are you measuring along the way with this experiment? Yeah. Um, I think a sort of interesting thing about cash is because people spend it in all different ways, you want to evaluate a broad set of metrics to make sure that you're kind of picking up on all the different ways that cash is flowing through to how um, people's lives change. And so there's a basic thing of trying to get a broad sense of how welfare changes. And so you look at things like consumption surveys, food security, purchases of assets, and things like that to just get a sense of how is this person's economic life change. Um, I, I think something that's important for basic income, especially given a lot of the debate, is how people use their time. And so there's this sort of classic question of do people work less or things like that. Um, but there's also the question of how do people spend the rest of their time? Do they spend more time caregiving, invest in learning a skill, invest in education, or things like that? And so we'll just sort of do a broad set of time use type questions. Um, another category of question that I think is important is risk taking and investment behavior. Um, mm -hmm. Because a sort of important question is, once you provide this safety net, especially we'll be providing it for up to 12 years, and so especially that sort of longer-term safety net, um, the question is, do people take different sort of big life risks? And so in Kenya, it might be migrating to Nairobi for a different type of job, or investing in paying school fees for your child and sort of putting them from primary through secondary school. Um, you can sort of imagine a whole host of things of growing a crop, crop that takes a while to um, mature or learning a skill or things like that. So you mentioned moving to Nairobi. That brings up a great question, which is, if you're doing this at the village level, what happens if people leave partway through? Right, we've thought about this, and it is tricky. Um, and so for us, the way we decided to treat migration is for basically once we enter a village, we'll have a sense of everyone who's a resident at that time. And then as long as you are, were a resident at that time, the cash transfer will follow you wherever you go. And so we'll go at great lengths, um, and people will have incentives to sort of keep in touch, but we'll sort of keep in touch with people as they move um, throughout, throughout Kenya and potentially also throughout East Africa and elsewhere, um, and we'll sort of continue to pay that cash transfer. Um, people who migrate into the village won't be eligible because there's sort of some mixed incentives there that are especially quirks of the pilot, though there are some like immigration-type policy-type questions for a national, national level as well. So along those lines, are there concerns, either logistical or societal, uh, that you have for this experiment that are a result of scaling up to the village level that you might not have on an individual level? Right. I think... I think the biggest thing, in many ways, from a sort of communication perspective, it's easier. Um, a lot of the problems when you're giving cash transfer in terms of how to communicate it or the sort of um, how societies are reacting is, why doesn't this person receive? Um, and that's true both when you have a sort of targeting criteria that's correlated with, prop, with poverty but imperfect. Um, people have a lot of senses of why someone might deserve cash or not, and so you get all sorts of questions in that level. And then it's also true if you randomize at the individual level and it looks sort of, um, it's sort of on the sort of first glance, looks very unfair that this person's receiving, this person isn't. And so I think from a communication perspective, it's actually um, a lot easier. Uh, the, the tricky thing is actually sort of a funding thing, that this requires a study to be a lot bigger. And we decided it was worth doing that. But it means that you're sort of 
um, from what level of sample size gets you statistical power. Um, you're funding whole villages instead of being able to compare lots of individuals within one village. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can zoom out a little bit on your research, are there some uh, maybe counterintuitive findings that you've come across so far that you're looking to see replicated on a, a village level? I think one of the sort of interesting questions for us is the lump sum comparison versus the sort of small regular streams of cash. And it's also a debate you see in general with um, the sort of basic income type approaches versus like a child grant type approach or a sort of wealth transfer type approach. Um, one thing we found in the first randomized control trial we did was that the more you give people lump sums, the more they'll invest and buy assets and things like that. And then the more sort of intuitively, the more you give people streams, the better you sort of solve for food security type, uh, type outcomes mm -hmm. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and so I think a big question for us is filling out that map of depending on the type of outcome you're most interested in, which governments and policymakers and also different people within the basic income community basic income community have different outcomes they're interested in, what types of cash approaches map onto those most clearly. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And then large applications. You're studying this in Kenya. Are you expecting or hoping that what comes out of the experiment will influence things more broadly than that? That's certainly our hope. Um, and, you know, we're thinking a lot about the research design and the team to try to make sort of maximize that chance. Um, something we're really excited about is that Alan Kruger, the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, is helping lead the research, um, specifically with the goal of trying to bridge um, different sort of policy worlds and design the research to answer those sort of more universal questions. Um, and there is some precedent of sort of developing world cash transfer research influencing the uh, developed world. Um, Mayor Bloomberg in New York did a, a sort of conditional cash transfer study in part inspired by opportunities in Mexico. Um, and I think part of it is that there are some aspects of the different questions that are universal, that you get someone a safety net and then how do they respond? Do they still want to work? What, is, what are aspects of risk taking and things like that? Um, and so our, our aim is definitely to sort of inform this broad global policy debate. Um, and we're thinking about that both at the sort of design level and which people are involved and things like that. Both the basic income and this form of aid have become maybe a little bit more more well-known and more mainstream over the last few years. Do you find that your work is getting any less controversial, or are you still having a lot of the same debates and conversations that you had and that the founders of GiveDirectly had, you know, from the beginning? It's really funny. It's diff within different worlds both cash and basic income is either like boring or totally crazy. <laughs> and so we've seen something with cash transfers where um, it's gone from like very controversial, seemed totally crazy. There's been sort of like a wave of evidence basically all over the world um, showing pretty consistent results, lots of positive ones and very little evidence of bad spending. Um, and now within the academic community, some aspects of cash transfers are sort of boring. You know, it's been tested, it's been proven. There's, you shouldn't sort of like keep testing that a car runs or something like that. Um, and then depending on the donor, they've either heard all about it or it's totally new to them and seems crazy. And I, I think basic income's in a similar moment where, um, you know, depending on the person, depending on the circle, it's either, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I have this very specific question that I want to see play out in the evidence or see model or something like that. Um, or this would never work. This is a total non-starter politically. This is a total non-starter feasibly. Um, and so it's, it's the sort of constant different worlds, totally different results for both cash and basic income. Hmm. 
It's really interesting. Uh, well, this has been great, Joe. Thank, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was Joe Houston on the Basic Income Podcast. To hear more enlightening and entertaining interviews like this one, please subscribe. And if you're so inclined, rate us and review on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. Thank you for listening.